Welcome to Maison Pur, the podcast. I'm your host, Molly Hill. This podcast is all about natural living and how to get there without stressing out. We'll discuss easy tips to help create a healthier home, natural ways to care for our bodies, and so much more. Joining me today is Paul Tukey. He's an organic lawn care expert. He's also the author of the Organic Lawn Care Manual, which I've referred to a lot on the blog and on social media. He's an award-winning documentary producer, as well as a former host of People, Places, and Plants on HGTV. And currently, he's the chief sustainability officer over at Glenstone Museum outside of DC. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing today? Good. I am so thankful for your time and your wisdom on this subject today. Well, I'm excited to talk. So I've been a longtime fan of your book, The Organic Lawn Care Manual, and I think many of us are trying to approach all areas of life with a more sustainable and eco-friendly attitude, and lawn care is definitely a place where we could use a lot more of that. Um, But I'll admit, when I was first looking into it, it was more just for health reasons. I have two small kids and a dog, and you know, thinking about them out back running around and thinking about what I was applying to the lawn, I wanted to make sure it was safe for them. And I had a hard time finding good resources to turn to for just general information. And I found your book and it's been one of the best resources that I've found. Well, thanks. I, it's you know been a long time now. It's amazing how I started that project probably almost 15 years ago. But before that, I, I was really, because it, I came to it from a health standpoint as well, because I had been a professional landscaper and I was putting down all the so-called weed and feed and roundup and everything to make all of my customers' lawns green. And I didn't understand the collateral damage that I was causing to the environment and to myself and to my family. And so that was, that's going back more than 25 years now. So I've been at this for a very, very long time. Um, A lot of my readers have come to me, they want to switch over, they're not really sure how, they kind of want just a general overview, like what is this going to mean for me if I switch up what I'm currently doing? So I was wondering if you could kind of give a brief explanation of organic lawn care and kind of what what the key differences are and what the long-term benefits would be for it. Okay, so when you go to the garden center and you're buying a synthetic chemical product, whether it's a f- the four-step plan, the weed and feed, and the insect killer and some more fertilizer, those are all coming from a laboratory. They're all synthetic chemical products, often derived from the petroleum industry. And you put them down and they will make your lawns greener, no doubt about it. But you're not mimicking Mother Nature's systems at all. So when we talk about organic lawn care, we're talking about a natural system that's really growing things the same way that Mother Nature does. And I always like to tell people, Mother Nature is the best gardener, otherwise we wouldn't have forests. You know, I'm looking out my window right now and I see really tall trees. And I always like to remind the children that, you know, how did those trees grow really tall in the forest when I'm talking to school kids and they come up with some cute answers. But the reality is that if we let the pine needles fall on the ground and the leaves fall on the ground and the bark fall on the ground, All of that stuff becomes food that makes incremental growth possible for those trees. And the same thing happens in our lawns, where if we let the clippings stay on the lawn and biodegrade, and we let the clover grow on the lawn, the clover is a legume. That means it's a classification of plants that can grab atmospheric nitrogen and store it in its roots, and it will feed the lawn naturally. And so... In an organic system, when you do add a product, it's an organic product that comes from plants and animals. If you're in a chemical lawn care system, you're buying a product that came from a laboratory like I already talked about. So we are trying to create a living system to enhance a living system with the goal of achieving a beautiful lawn. It may not be exactly the same as a chemical lawn but it's, it's going to be a very, very nice lawn. And that's the long-term benefit is that the planet is going to be healthier. Your children are going to be 
healthier, your, your pets, you're not putting anybody at risk in an organic lawn care system. Nothing you're putting out there is going to harm you, your family, or the planet. And I found that's true for most things. If it's healthy for you, it's healthier for the planet too. As far as, you know, somebody looking at this cost-wise, do you feel like it would cost a lot more to switch to an organic approach? Or do you think it's maybe long-term would even save money? Absolutely. Uh, it Long-term, it will save money. And it all goes comes back to expectations. When I hear that cost question, which you get it a lot. And so if you have something that looks like Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium or wherever your home favorite sports field is or Augusta National Country Club and you really just can't abide a single weed anywhere and you just you really want perfection and then you but you say okay I don't I want perfection but I want to go organic then sure you can spend a lot of money and it may be more money in the first year or two that you make the transition to a natural organic system because you've got to get your lawn alive again. You've got to get your soil alive again. And and by that, I mean, when you've, when you've been putting down these chemicals, it bypasses the soil's natural systems. It bypasses the way that mother nature typically grows things. And so you put down the so-called four-step plan and, and it's not, it's completely ignoring the way mother nature wants it. So when you go organic, you look at the soil and the soil may be essentially dead. The soil does has lost its ability to cycle nutrients through it and it's de- it becomes dependent on those chemicals. So in an organic system, we've got to get the soil back to life, which might mean the addition of some expensive soil amendments like compost. That is the that is the best way to bring your soil back to life is by the addition of compost. But if you're trying to blanket an entire lawn with compost, that can be expensive in that first year. You're trying to get the organic matter up to where it needs to be. And soil is made of six components, sand, silt, clay, air, water, and organic matter. Now, organic matter is where all the growth happens. It's the living part of the soil. Everything else is either, you know, air is air, air is pathways, uh, water flows through those pathways. The sand, silt, and clay give the soil its structure or not. You know, sandy soil doesn't necessarily have a lot of structure. But you look at those five components and then you say, okay, what's the ma- where does the magic happen? It's in the organic matter. That's in the area that used to be alive. So if you think of leaves that are biodegraded and they become leaf litter in the forest, that's organic matter. If you think of grass clippings that have biodegraded, that's organic matter. If you think of any kind of anything that used to be alive, and it can be animal manures, it can be biodegraded plants, anything like that that you can put, that you can add into the to the garden, into the landscape on top of the lawn in the form of natural materials, in the form of compost, that's going to bring your organic matter up higher. I always, you know, if this is confusing for people, I say, get a soil test. Dig up some soil four to six inches deep on your lawn send it off to a lab, and you're going to get a lot of information back. One of the key pieces of information is going to be the percentage of organic matter in the soil. Typically, I see a lot of soils that are 1% or 2% organic matter, especially if they've been treated with a lot of chemicals. They aren't very healthy. Maybe the contractor didn't leave a lot of good topsoil. So you have a very low amount of organic matter. If you want to be successful in organic lawn care, you need you need the percentage to be five to eight percent organic matter, and it can be higher and not be detrimental, right? Yeah, I mean, if it gets too high, if it can be ten or twelve, and I I have been doing this for twenty five some odd years, and I've never seen it higher than eight, but it can theoretically you could get it so high that the spoil the soil would be so spongy that it wouldn't support foot traffic very well. 
Uh, I've been in plenty of vegetable gardens where the organic matter was really, really high. And if you've ever walked through a really rich soil in a garden, you might, your feet might sink in three or four inches. That's because the soil is so fluffy, so spongy with all the good stuff that's been added into that garden through the years. That's not good lawn soil because it is so spongy and you can't support a lawnmower traffic. But for lawns, uh, five to eight is the number to go for. It, again, especially if you want to go for a natural system, that 5%, think of it as a batter of a cake, you can think, think either a sponge or a batter of a cake. And, you know, you put in the flour, that's not you know, where the magic really happens. And the water is the water, the flour is the flour. When, it's, when you start to get the magic in there is when you start to add the eggs. You know, that's that. And that's when the cake starts to happen. Well, the soil is the same way where you the sand, silt and clay. But when you start to add the batter, when you start to add the organic matter, then then you're cooking. Yeah. Well, I'm in North Carolina currently and uh, we have very hard, you know, majority is clay in our soil. So when we first kind of went down this path, I started adding a lot of compost because we didn't have a lot of organic matter. And I continue to do it uh, in the fall and in the spring. So I'm, I'm guessing that I can't add too much. No, I mean, you, I doubt it. Let me, let me put it that way. I, I really, really doubt it. When I, I work at a museum in Maryland called Glenstone now, and actually my in-laws live in North Carolina, so I'm down there a few times a year. And we do have clay soils as well. And so you did the right thing by adding the compost. At Glenstone, we had compost in the spring and the fall. We did that for about five years. We blanketed the whole lawn with about a quarter to a half inch layer of compost. And then we would put new grass seed every spring and fall right into the compost. And that that was our weed control right there. Yeah. When you, when you blanket with compost in the springtime, that's a pre-emergent weed control system in itself because most of the weed seeds that are in your soil need light to germinate in the spring if they don't have any light then they're not going to germinate so by covering the soil with compost you get you get weed control you get you get nutrition you get more biology you get better structure because you're reducing the impact of that clay that you're dealing with in north carolina and you're increasing the sponge factor because you're increasing that organic matter, which means the soil is going to hold on to more water. And I know from experience in North Carolina and Maryland, it's 90 to 100 degrees a lot of the days in the summertime. Yeah. And you can get dr really dry periods with not a lot of rain. The higher you get your organic matter in the lawn, in the soil, the more drought tolerant your grass is going to be the happier you're going to be with the way it looks. Yeah. I'll say the area that gets baked the most in the summer, just the sun just is crushing it all day. Um, since we've started adding the compost, it's done much better. It was, it was probably just straight clay before, honestly, and the water just ran right off of it whenever we get any type of rainfall. Uh, so I, I've seen a big difference just from adding that in. Yeah. And that's, and it's really simple. I get, sometimes I'll, give these hour-long lectures various places around the country. And at the end, I almost always say, you know, you could just add compost and have a nice day. I mean, it's the simple <laughs> it's the simple thing, and it's a magic answer for, I don't care if you're growing tomatoes or trees or lawns. Uh, compost really is gardener's gold. It's if, if you just do one thing and you want to get rid of the chemicals, the one thing you should do is spend some money on some compost now try to find a a bulk session a bulk um, a, a bulk source that is if you can if your municipality makes it or you have a, a local company that does compost in bulk because if you buy it in those you know those forty pound bags it probably can get pretty expensive. Well, I do buy that for my garden the bags, but when I've when I do the yard, my dad's kind enough to take his pickup truck down to a place and and just load up the truck and bring it. So That's it's a little perfect. bit. Yeah, it's cheaper to do it that way. I guess it depends on which area you're in, if you have access to that. You might find a farmer, too. You can talk to local farmers. A lot of them might have animals. They're generating a lot of manure. Uh, they're composting that manure in a, in a nice, healthy way. 
that can be really good material also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking of soil, I know in the book you go into soil almost being like a, a living thing and uh, having its own almost like micro ecosystem happening. So I think I get a lot of questions about that and people are like, what should I be looking for in my soil? And honestly, I don't know how to answer that. I know we've tried to treat our soil by adding things like compost, but I don't I don't know enough to, to explain that to somebody. So I was going to see if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, your soil, healthy soil, needs to be every bit as alive as you and I are. Think of it that way. A single teaspoon of soil has literally trillions of microbes. And those microbes, these can be bacteria, protozoa, nematodes, amoeba, all this stuff in the soil have the exact same needs that we do as people that we all or all living organisms have the same fundamental needs. They need to eat. They need to drink. They need to breathe. They, when they digest their food, when they eat their food, they digest it and they excrete it out. It's what my grandmother in Maine used to call the poop loop of life. <laughs> we, we, we were dairy farmers. So our life was milking and managing cow manure. And that was, that was what we did. You know, we milked for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And the rest of the day, we were managing the manure, putting it out on the field so we grow more crops to feed the animals or grow crops to feed ourselves. And again, that's, that's what you do. Well, what you're doing in a natural system is you are trying to enhance that poop loop of life and understanding that the soil is alive. And if people start to think of their lawns and soils as being alive, Sometimes they start to think about treating those soils differently. Simple things like, okay, the soil is alive. You want to grow grass there. Stop driving your Winnebago or your car on your lawn. Yeah. Because you're going to compact the soil and the soil can't breathe when you do that. If you have a weed problem on your lawn, it's often because the soil isn't living and breathing as well as it could. And in the areas that are most compacted, they're going to have the worst weed problems because there are certain subsets of weeds that love compacted soils. Weeds are messengers sent by Mother Nature to tell us something about the soil below. They are symptoms. And you can kill those messengers or those symptoms any number of ways, right? You can, you can flame the weed. You can put a chemical on the weed. You could put boiling hot water on the weed. I mean, God forbid you bend over and pull it out. You know, my, <laughs> my grandmother's favorite time of year was up in Maine. It was early April when the dandelions were starting to grow everywhere. For her, that was a buffet table. That's what the lawn was. And she would go door to door to door on Reeves Road in Bradford, Maine, digging up people's dandelions by the bushel and coming home, rinsing them off and force feeding them to me, saying they were <laughs> They were good for what ailed me. And, and somehow in the last 50 years, we've gotten away from that culture where people see dandelions as really good, healthy food to where people see dandelions as a scourge that we need to get rid of. And, and so you, you asked about soil. That was a bit of a long-winded answer. But the bottom line is that soil is alive when you have what we call nutrient cycling, it's because the organisms are eating each other. If you look at soil under a microscope, it looks like a war zone and everything is eating everything else. And so that eating, digesting, excreting is creating something called a nutrient cycle. And that's how Mother Nature gardens is that, that, that nutrient cycle that happens. And you get, a, you get enough water, you get enough air, enough organic matter because that organic matter again is the food that's what they're eating they're, they're, this, the, these organisms are eating and digesting and excreting that organic matter turning it into minerals that the lawn that the plants can use to grow and then you get the sunshine and the water and that's where all the growth happens and it's it's really breaking it down into its basic forms for something that's pretty simple if you want to take the time to understand it. I, I know you feel pretty strongly about getting a soil test uh, just to kind of get your bearings and figure out exactly the, the picture of your lawn's health. Does that 
cover also like would they be able to tell you like how alive like if there's a lot of activity happening in your lawn well so there's different kinds of soil tests so the, the soil tests that you most state universities and i know north carolina state university does soil tests and the cooperative extension service typically is the organization that does that and that's probably a 15 or 20 dollar fee and you're going to get a, a chemistry test when you do that for 15 or 20 dollars and they're going to tell you your what's your ph a ph is a scale that runs from 0 to 14 7 being neutral lawn soils like a ph of about 6.8 to 7 and and if it's low they might tell you to add some some calcium if it's high you might add some sulfur those will be recommendations that you'll get back from the soil test. If the organic matter is too low, below five, they, you can talk about adding compost. What There are soil tests available called bioassays, and you send the soil away to a lab, and it'll tell you how alive your soil is. Now, that's a big, that's about $150, and that's a lot for an average homeowner to take on. But what you can do it's very, very simple, is dig up some soil and, do, and look at and see if you see any earthworms. Are you seeing any, any milling insects, any crawling insects in there? Are you seeing any, the earthworms is a big one. And if you don't see any, anything alive, nothing's visible, visible to you as being alive, and then you smell the soil, and does it smell pungent? Does it have any scent of ammonia to it? Um, that's a sign of a soil that's, that doesn't have a lot of organic matter. It doesn't have the proper amount of air flowing through it. It doesn't smell healthy. If you go out in the forest and dig up some soil that's full of organic matter, full of leaves, it smells earthy, almost sweet. And, and so trust your nose and trust your eyes. But earthworms are a great indicator of healthy soil. All right. And so as far as the soil test, uh, I know in your book, you list some places that people can get it done. Um, so how often do you recommend somebody gets their soil tested when they're first starting out? Well, I, you may, depending on how bad it is, if you have soil that's in trouble, that needs a lot of help, you might want to do it every year until you until you feel like you get it right. And and by getting it right, that means that you've moved your pH into a comfortable area. You've got your organic matter up to where you want it to be. You may want some proof that all the money you spent, all the effort that you put in is actually doing some good. And, you know, and once you've got it to where you want it to be, that I think every three years is probably fine. And again, you, you may get to the point where you you're happy with the way the lawn looks. You don't feel like anything needs to be changed. You're leaving your grass clippings where they fall, which means you're re restoring organic matter inherently when you do that, if you're not bagging clippings, then you, you may not need to get a soil test at all. And there, there are varying degrees here. So we, we start out by talking about perfection, the people that want Augusta National Country Club in their backyard, or the average person who's pretty happy mowing whatever comes up. So people get really wigged out about weeds in the springtime, but that's when the dandelions bloom. But you know what? The dandelion flowering season is about two weeks. And then people can chill out after that. I, I tend to see they get a lot less stressed out about it as the season goes on. And in fact, a really healthy organic lawn or a really heavily fertilized chemical lawn is going to require a lot of mowing and a lot of work. And so a lot of people are pretty happy to chill with a lawn that, okay, it looks pretty good, but I don't have to mow it you know, every four or five days. And it's just, it's better for the planet. It's better for them. There's other things they can do with their time. Sure. And I think the whole idea of just a perfectly homogenized lawn is kind of a newer concept. I mean, I think if you look back even probably 50 years ago, you saw less of that. And as you've pointed out, uh, you know, there's things like clover that actually helps your lawn. And that used to be an integral part of a lawn. I feel like especially I get questions from people who live in areas where there's maybe a stricter HOA and they are 
they they still are striving for that homogenized lawn care. But I think at some point, if you're looking at things from a sustainable uh, aspect, like how sustainable is that going to be for for you personally and for the planet? Yeah, I mean that that is that is ultimately the basis of of what I've been trying to talk about now for a very long time is is sustainability because clearly the path that we're on is not sustainable. We're wasting copious amounts of resources to keep up with the Joneses. And this the lawn care industry is one of the few industries anywhere in the world that you can look back to a single weekend in 1967. It was the first weekend in April. And it, I don't know if you have any golfers who listen to your podcast, but the first weekend of April every year is, oh, I'm sorry, it's the second weekend of April to be exact. It's, it's the Masters Golf Tournament. And in 1967, the Masters was broadcast in full color for the very first time. And, and that same summer, baseball games and football games were broadcast in full color for the very first time. And so the men of America, and, the psych- and I've interviewed psychologists through the years, who men are somehow comforted by the color green and we love looking out at our vast lawns and take great pride in our in the in the laws but this really became a marketing obsession for this whole industry so you had the true green chemlon company of troy ohio which was a a few hundred thousand dollars in sales in 1966 1967 they become america's first million dollar company because they start marketing fairway front lawns to consumers. And then ultimately they come the fir- they become the first billion dollar company because they're so successful with an advertising campaign to get convince people that that homogenous green lawn with no so-called weeds, just perfect grass as far as the eye can see. That was that became the American ideal. And people like me have been saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is the collateral damage of the American ideal? You know, I'm getting sick as a lawn care professional. I made my son sick as a lawn care professional. I, what God knows what I was doing to the birds and the bees and other insects and the water supply. And we now know we have, you know, unassailable evidence that this is really, really bad for the planet. When you have people taking water samples and they're finding lawn chemicals in the water samples in really high, uh, high amounts, it's just awful. And it's, it's disheartening sometimes to think that some people aren't getting this message and taking it more seriously. But on the other hand, a lot more people like you are talking about organic lawn care now. And so maybe we are making some progress. I, I hope so. I beat my little drum I have for years about this kind of thing. I'm hoping that just even changing a few people's minds can can change things. I think consumer demand, if that starts to change, can change up a little bit of the industry. Absolutely. I mean, that's it, changing one, one conversation at a time, one lawn at a time. So another question that I get a lot is, which grass is best? And I'm always like, I can't tell you that because I don't know. You know, I live in North Carolina now, but I'm from Boston. Actually, I know you're from Maine and I I spent every summer there. So a lot of the grasses I was around as a kid don't do as well down here. And I don't know what the climate's like where everybody is. So uh, what are some resources or how can people kind of take some time and choose what type of grass is going to be the best for their situation? Yeah, so not... You're, you're right on to something that not all grasses are created equally. A lot of people think grass is grass is grass, and that's just not true. And there are, there are two basic categories of warm season grasses and cool season grasses. Cool season grasses don't like it when it's above 90 degrees, uh, and warm season grasses don't like it when it's below freezing. That's a general way to look at it. And so you need to, first of all, look at your climate wherever you're listening. So if you're in North Carolina, you're going to warm season grasses are going to do really well, except for maybe a couple months in winter where they might go dormant. They might turn grayish, uh, whatever. They might turn straw brown, depending on what species it is, as it is. And then in the warm season, they're going to thrive. Uh, up in Maine or Massachusetts, where you were first from, the warm season grasses like Bermuda grass, for example, 
that's not going to do well up there at all because winter is a much, much longer season. Although with climate change, that's even that's changing a little bit. So first of all, pick out what climate you think you have. And then, and then what are your sunlight situations, conditions on your property? And so in North Carolina, something like a turf type tall fescue is going to be a great grass for a full sun situation or mostly sun, lots of sunlight, turf type tall fescue. If you have a mostly shady situation, but you want lawns, then and I and anything less than two hours of sun per day, you should be picking out a different plant besides grass to grow there. You can grow pachysander, you can grow, there's lots of plants that love shade, but lawn grasses doesn't happen, happen to be one of them. So if you have about two to four, two to five hours of sunlight per day, then you want something called Chewing's Red Fescue. So it's spelled like chewing gum with an S, Chewing's Red Fescue. That'll be a really good choice for a shady area. And then the turf type tall fescue in North Carolina. And I have a whole chapter in the book on the different grasses in a chart. You can go to seedland.com and they have a whole array of lawn seeds to choose from based on where you live. And you can click on your state and your sunlight situation. And so there are lots of online sources, resources to pick out the best grass seed. And there's a lot of breeding work being done every single year around the world, but certainly in the United States, out in Washington State, out in Oregon, that's where a lot of the great breeding happens. Some of it happens on the, on the East Coast at Penn State and Rutgers, and, and they're always trying to improve turf grasses to be more drought tolerant, to be more insect resistant, to be just generally perform better because it is a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry, the turf grass industry. And they're, they're trying to make it easier for time-starved consumers to have better lawn. So another question that I get often is from folks who are redoing their yard or starting from scratch and they want to start off organically. So they're, they're starting from the very beginning and they are asking if sod or if seed is better to start from. And, you know, I don't know, I would assume sod would be easier, but that probably depends on the specific circumstances. Starting from scratch is an exciting opportunity because that, that gives you the opportunity, first of all, get the soil right. So look at your budget. Sod is going to give you immediate gratification. Sod is going to be a monocrop, so it's going to be one species typically. Uh, say turf type tall fescue uh, and if you have the money to put down sod then then go for it or maybe you've got you prioritize i tell a lot of people to pick out your priorities if you've got an acre you might not want to have the whole acre at the same level of treatment at the same level of so-called perfection so so maybe you sod an area that's it's high priority for you, or maybe you sawed a, a steep slope because it's really hard to get seed established on a steep slope. So you put sod there so that you you get some quick establishment. But it's generally about three times as much money initially to put down sod as it is seed. You know, grass seed is in the big picture is very very inexpensive, but you bring it home, the seed that is, and you put it down. You've got to water it every single day until it's germinated and then thereafter you try to you try to pull back to that ultimately you want to get to a place where you're watering once a week whether it's a seeded lawn or a sodded lawn you want to water really really deeply once a week so that the roots learn to grow deeply to go down to get water rather than hanging around the surface hoping for water every day the deeper the roots the more drought tolerant they're going to become the more insect resistant they're going to become with grass seed, you may have a lot more competition initially from weeds, and that's a frustration for people. So depending on what level of weed seed there is in the soil that you have there, a lot of, if you're starting from scratch, a lot of times that soil's turned over, it's been exposed to light, all of a sudden you're going to get a big lush, rush and flush of weeds moving in. And so it is definitely more work to start from seed, no doubt about it. 
I think that's good advice about just using it maybe in area areas that are higher priority. Yes. Yeah. And and the other thing is make sure when you're laying down your sod that when you seam it together that you you actually you get a packet in there pretty tightly because the sod will actually shrink a little bit as it starts to dry out. And and then you can have these gaps. And a lot of times if I see an area where the sod is poorly laid, you'll actually get this tiny, you know, half inch to eight, eighth an inch to a half inch row of weeds that pop up through. And that's that can be really, really ugly. So yeah. make sure when you're packing that sod down. And then if you do have areas where there's open spaces, make sure that you're putting down grass seed in those open spaces because weeds will move in. And that's true for any open area on your lawn this spring. You know, if you're in North Carolina, it's already springtime for all intents and purposes. You have a thin, bare area on your lawn and you're just hoping the grass is going to fill in later this year. Trust me, weeds are going to fill in. Put out some grass seed, water it every day, either with your hose or a watering can until it germinates. Give a little tender loving care. You'll be a lot happier two or three months from now if you do that now. Yeah, that's actually on on my schedule for this upcoming weekend because we've already got things blooming and we have some bare spots. So I'm going to go out there and reseed. Uh, And actually, we do use tall fescue. So I'm happy to hear that that's a good recommendation for this area. Yeah, definitely. For those who are maybe just starting out and they're transitioning from using traditional lawn care chemicals, uh, there's a little bit of a withdrawal period. What's the best time of the year and what's kind of the process for going through that? Well, the best time is fall. Uh, That is absolutely the best time to do almost any kind of gardening. And the reason being is that we have the springtime is is the second best time. And and it's, it's a good time to start. But what happens is sometimes summer will hit us really darn quickly and the plants haven't really had a chance to establish fully, and all of a sudden they're under heat stress. And that can be challenging, and that that means you've got to water a lot in the summertime to sort of nurture along those young plants. So I like to start, if I can, in late September or October, as soon as that last wave of really intense heat has gone by, and then do your seeding then, do your compost then you might if you've got really heavy clay soils you might want to rent an aerator or have or hire someone with an aerator that's a machine that literally pokes holes so it looks like your lawn can look like swiss cheese (laughs) but those holes actually make it possible for air and water and any kind of compost or any other soil amendments that you add into your lawn to get down to the roots where they're really needed more quickly so that's the purpose of of aerating, but doing all that in the fall is going to give you the best. Cause then typically you've got two or three months and in areas where you don't have harsh winters, that lawn may keep growing to some degree all winter long. So, you know, right now is certainly a good time. If you can get out there and beat the heat, uh, you've got a window of opportunity to get out there in the next few weekends before it starts to get really hot. And again, North Carolina can get pretty hot pretty quickly. I hear from my in-laws that you've You've had some 70 degree days already. And, yeah. uh, you know, really, you want to be out there doing your spring gardening in the mid 50s to low 60s uh, and get it out there before you get into those 70s and 80s. Yeah. I, I do try to use, we have a dogwood tree here, which I have found to be um, a pretty good indicator. And it is, it's just barely started to get buds on it. And then all of a sudden it heated up really quick this spring. So I think I might have miss the window slightly, but hopefully there's still time to get everything down. No, and you're, you're absolutely onto something. So we say, look at the forsythia or the dogwoods. And as soon as they're starting to put out some color, some flowers, that means that the weeds, the crabgrass and other weeds in your lawn are starting to germinate as well. And so you want to get your compost out there, top dressing so that you're covering over those weeds, or you want to get your grass seed out there at that same time so that you can that grass seed can beat the weeds to the punch. We do have a problem with crabgrass in our area and and also in our yard. So, 
you know, in years past, I've used the cornmeal gluten as a pre-emergent, and I have seen some reduction, although last year, midsummer, it, it came back pretty hard. So I was kind of hesitant this year. Uh, you know, I was like, I need to seed, but I know I can't seed and put down the, that product because it will, just like it prevents the, the crabgrass, it'll make it so my grass can't grow. So what, what's your, if I'm trying to fill in those bare spots, but I'm also battling something like crabgrass coming up. What do you do? Well, that like goes back to compost. So you can a finished compost, a, a good quality compost that that has been cooking for a long enough period of time, and the temperatures come back down. You should be able to seed right into that, and this in the seed will germinate right in the compost. So I would top dress the area, get your get your blanket of a quarter to a half inch of compost down there, and seed right into that because that dark compost is going to shade the crabgrass seeds. So they're going to be a lot less likely to germinate. But meanwhile, the grass seed that you're putting right on top of the compost and watering will sprout and and beat back that crabgrass. So that's the best way to do that. Okay. So it, it really does all come back to compost. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really, really does. Speaking of of weeds, I that's probably the number one thing people ask me about. Um, and basically, if you're if you're establishing an organic lawn, uh, my view is that all things are working together to control the weeds. But um, you know, obviously, people still I even still have stuff popping up. Can you talk a little bit about? I know you have a weed guide in your book, which I refer to a lot. But kind of just overall, how the system works together to control the weeds and what people can can do about weeds that pop up. Well, so as I've already said, weeds are messengers sent by Mother Nature to tell us something about the soil. So if you go out there in March, April, May, depending on where you live, and your lawn is mostly dandelions, that's because that's what your soil wants to grow. You can you can pull the dandelions, you can kill them any number of ways, but they're going to keep coming back year over year until you change the underlying soil conditions that make the dandelions want to grow. And so the chapter in my book is learning to read your lawn. What are the weeds telling you? So if, again, when with dandelions, it happens to be that there's not enough calcium at the surface of the soil. And the deep taproot of the dandelion is going down into the subsoil to pull calcium up to the surface. Well, if there's already calcium at the surface of the soil, then the dandelions don't need to grow there anymore. If you look at plantain, which is a very common weed in most of the country, where does plantain like to grow? In really heavy clay compacted soils. If you look at the root system of a plantain plant, it's a really bushy, bushy plant, a bushy root system that is, that kind of fans out from a central location, its goal is to break up clay soils. That's what it's there for. If you have a lot of clover, clover is going to exist a lot on lawns that are hungry for nitrogen. Clover, as I've already said, is a legume. So the air is 78% nitrogen, but most plants can't get to that nitrogen. Well, clover can. Peas and beans can, vetch can, there's, there's a, bunch of plants that can. Clover is the one that shows up on lawns and its purpose is to add nitrogen into the system, into the soil. And if you actually add, if you see a whole bunch of clover or more clover than you want, then you need to find a way to add more nitrogen. You know, the good news is you can go into Home Depot or Lowe's now and buy organic lawn fertilizers that have 12% nitrogen in there and in, in they're safe they're natural and they work really, really well. So figure out what the weeds are indicating, number one, and see if you can change the soil conditions. And then you can do some of the things that I talked about, which is you can put down compost so that the weed seeds don't germinate, but the grass seed does. You can get out there throughout the season when you have thin, bare areas and put down seed. Don't think you're going to seed just once and be done if you want a really nice looking lawn. You may find yourself out there a half a different, half a dozen different times, that is, throughout the summer and into the fall with your grass seed. 
you know, if you're a golfer and you go along and you create a divot, well, there's always grass seed on the golf carts to re so that you're reseeding that divot area unless you can put the divot in the grass right back where it was. But what the golf course superintendent, who's an expert, doesn't want is a bunch of bare patches around his fairway. So you either want you to put the divot back or put the seed back. Home gardeners and home lawn care folks should be thinking along the same terms is what can I do to keep grass growing here and keep the weeds away? The big, big, big thing is mowing height when you're talking about weed control. One of the best defenses against weeds is keeping your lawn long enough. We recommend four inches. That's generally usually the highest setting on your mower. And that freaks a lot of people out. Uh, they think that's too long. But the reality is the University of Maryland did a study that I was able to commission them to do with Glenstone. And they looked at mowing heights of two inches, three inches, and four inches. And at four inches, you have 80% fewer weeds than you do at three inches. At three inches, you have 80% fewer weeds than you do at two inches. So the higher you let leave the lawn, the less, the fewer weeds you're going to have because the tall grass plants shade the surface of the soil so that soil is not getting any light and the weeds aren't germinating. The other thing it does, the tall grass plants, is it shades the surface of the soil and the, and the soil doesn't dry out and the lawn isn't getting stressed as much. A stressed lawn is a weedy lawn. A stressed lawn is going to attract more insects. And so the longer that you can leave the grass, and I'm saying three and a half, four or four and a half inches, the longer you can leave it, you're going to have fewer weeds, you're going to have fewer insects, you're going to need less water. You're going to use fewer resources. It's good for the planet. It's good for your pocketbook. It's That's a really, really good measure to take is to keep your lawn as long as you can. Yeah, that's a free and easy tip that will help too. Yeah. So, no doubt. Um, and speaking of watering, um, that's another topic that just touches on sustainability. You know, some people uh, have asked me about nearly waterless lawns. I don't really know how to achieve that unless you're using a different type of product than grass. But um, for those that are using grass, what are some of the things that you said, you know, keeping the uh, the mower higher so it shades the ground, the grass is longer and it shades the ground, but what other things can they do to try to uh, water less often? So the goal ought to be to, if you have to water, you're watering once every five to seven days and you're letting the hose run for a long time, completely saturating the soil 10 to 12 inches deep. And how do you tell? Everybody says, how do I know? Get your shovel out or get a soil probe, dig up some soil and feel it. And if you go down six inches and it feels bone dry, it's crumbly, add some more water. And you really, really want to drench it because what will happen is the sun will come out and the surface of the soil will dry out but below ground, where it's still in the shade, there'll be water, there'll be moisture, and the roots will grow down to get the water. That's what you want to do. You don't want to water every day or every other day. That's the absolute worst thing you can do. You should also water in the morning if you can. You can really start before dawn, and, but you ought to try to be done your watering by 9 or 10 in the morning. Watering in the middle of the day or the evening is not a good thing. If you water in the middle of the day, you're going to lose a lot of water to evaporation. If you water in the evening when the dew is setting, that means the surface of the grass is going to be wet from the dew, and you're going to be adding to that moisture level with the water that you put down, which is going to attract a lot of fungal disease to your lawn, and you'll start to get mildews and other kinds of problems out there on your lawn. So, Always water in the morning if you possibly can. That's that's a good tip as well. Um, so I'm looking over some of the questions that I frequently get, and I feel like I've touched on most of them here with the basics, but is there anything else that if somebody's just starting out that we haven't covered here that they might need to think about or look into? Well, I think, you know, so just to, just to review, we want to, I probably get, if you're a beginner, you want to get a soil test, start to understand how how soil functions. You want to 
apply grass seed, you know, keep some grass seed in the, in the potting shed, in the garage, in a cool area. Don't, don't have it in the direct sun because it'll lose some of its germination rate if you do that. But if you keep it, you don't have to keep it refrigerated, but try to keep it someplace where it's going to stay cool and dry and, and, and keep getting that out there. Get involved with compost and, and buy as much compost as you can afford. Try, start to look for a good local source like your dad in the pickup truck and figure out where you can get that compost. Get the mowing height higher water deeply once a week in the morning. If you do those basic things, you know, then that's, that's a really good place to start. And then just in general, assess your lawn for how you're using it. Lawns shouldn't necessarily be the default landscape feature of every yard in America. Now I've got children still at home. I've got grown children. I love to go out and throw a ball and that's no fun to do in a meadow. Uh, you need, you need a lawn. There's nothing bad. Lawns are an important place in our lives for picnics and for sports and just, just to live on. But if there are areas that you can don't need to be lawn, if you've got a riding tractor and you're mowing two acres on Saturday and Sunday, Ask yourself, isn't there something that you can do better with your time and your real estate and your money? And maybe you think about native meadows, think about more trees, which is a really good thing if you're talking about sustainability and how you can contribute to the issue of global warming in a positive way. Planting a tree doesn't really get any better than that. So think about other alternative uses for your, for your landscape other than lawns. Yeah, that's all. That's such great, useful information for everybody. Um, I'm going to link your book in the show notes uh, just so everybody can can take a look at that if they want to use it as a resource. You cover all of this in the book and more. And in the back, you even have even more resources for additional information and where to find some of the products that you mentioned in the book. I highly recommend it. I've just, I refer to it often. I wanted to thank you. I know you're very busy, so I appreciate you coming on today and kind of breaking down the basics for us and hopefully inspiring some people to take a more organic uh, look at their lawn. Well, I, and I appreciate it. And if anybody's ever up in Maryland, I work in a museum called Glenstone and Potomac. It's free to the public and it's 300 acres of all organics. So we have 440 acres of native meadows. We've got about six acres of an organic lawn. that's beautiful. I've been doing, I've been here for 10 years now. So Going organic is not going ugly. It's my motto. Uh, going organic can be beautiful. It's safe. It's it's just a really feel good thing to do, and and we've been really happy with it here. That sounds really amazing. I think uh, we travel up that way sometimes, so I might have to stop by and check that out. Please do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for your time today, Paul. Okay. Thank you so much. C'est la femme du